blood is a excellent intervention in the right circumstance. So if someone is bleeding, then a blood transfusion could be life-saving. Welcome to another Vein podcast. I'm Laura Redman, your host from Cape Town, South Africa. And today we are talking about iron or blood for the perioperative patients and iron in general. And I have the pleasure of introducing Professor Toby Richards from Australia, although originally from the UK, is internationally known for all his work on iron. And Dr. Matthew Gibbs, who's an anaesthetist um, in South Africa here in Cape Town with me, and who is doing his PhD on um, patient anemia. So Toby, let's start with you. I've visited your iron clinic in the UK. I haven't been to Australia yet. And I was actually interested on all your work from a cellular level. But I think for our listeners, can you just start with a bit of your history um, on your journey of iron from patient blood management to surgical management to where you are now? Absolutely. Thank you, Laura. Um, So scientifically, the question that we've been addressing is the impact of iron deficiency and anemia in people undergoing surgery. As it stands, many people undergoing major surgery also have anemia before their operation. Now, anemia can occur for several reasons. It could be a matter of their age or other comorbidities, or it could be the disease that the patient is having the operation for, whether or not it's a cancer, uh, or an inflammatory condition. But the, the thing is that anem- those patients who've got anemia, that anemia seems to be associated with a worse outcome. And that is in terms of perioperative complications and recovery from surgery. So the question we've been trying to address is if we can correct that anemia and the hypothesis is the majority of anemia is iron deficiency. Can we correct that risk, that effect that anemia is seen on patient outcomes? I.e., can we make people better and therefore can they do better as a consequence of surgery? And that, that's been the fundamental basis of our research over the last decade or so. Okay, thanks, Toby. And you've also done a, quite a lot of work in sports as well. Yeah, so in the background to this, we've been looking at the impact of iron deficiency and anemia on physical function and also on mental function. And this goes back quite a long way. Um, One of my first introductions to iron deficiency and anemia was in high altitude medicine. So I used to do quite a lot of mountaineering and climbing. And I was up on the Chinese border um, in Ladakh and in Northern India. And um, unfortunately, I had to take someone in for high altitude pulmonary edema to the local hospital. And there I was as a junior doctor, um, finding myself doing a ward round, you know, as you do, you get invited in as the ex- expert external person, even though I was just a junior doctor. And it was quite astonishing because this little hospital was isolated from the entirety of the world for six months of the year. Um, Yet they would do some pretty major surgery, even aortic aneurysms, uh, esophagectomies and things like that. And I asked about, 
you know, well, how do you manage this without being able to transfuse people? And next thing I know, we're stopped to a ward, which was the GI bleeding ward. And there's these patients looking as white as a sheet. The hemoglobins are twos and threes. And they have these little vials of black liquid. And essentially, the family had to go down to the market, buy intravenous iron, and there was no transfusion service. And so the entire hospital was run on intravenous iron. This was 20 years ago on the old fashioned iron dextran. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it was a bit of a eureka moment. I thought, well, if guys, if, these, if, if they could do it here, shouldn't we be learning from this and taking it home? Um, so yeah, the first inroads was um, on the back of a climbing trip, essentially. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, um, let's skip over to you, Matthew, and then please feel free to interrupt and chat with each other as well. But um, your PhD on patient anemia, do you want to just give us an overview on that? So <clears throat> thanks so much for the invitation to uh, join you today. Um, I'm fascinated to hear Toby's background in, in mountaineering because uh, I've been interested in, in rock climbing and mountaineering myself. So um, amazing to hear how uh, intravenous iron is being used at altitude. Uh, it is, it's, it's really great work. Uh, so my interest in uh, perioperative, in patient blood management sort of was peaked uh, uh, about seven years ago uh, when Andy Klein, um, who's a well-known uh, author and um, uh, researcher in, in, in uh, patient blood management and intravenous iron, came gave a talk at in South Africa. And I was just blown away by... Uh, and a new understanding of uh, iron metabolism and uh, the effects on anemia and patient outcomes uh, and realized that we've got huge issues uh, in Southern Africa, the low middle income countries, um, poor resourced areas where we've got very, very high prevalence of anemia, uh, whether that's due to uh, chronic inflammatory diseases, uh, HIV, um, we have a lot of trauma, and then we have issues with access to, uh, to blood. Blood is expensive, uh, particularly in, in, in South Africa. And uh, we, we, we're fortunate we've got world-class um, blood transfusion services um, uh, in South Africa. But elsewhere in uh, Africa and um, lower middle-income countries, it's, it's a problem to, to set up. And, and you realize it's becoming more the reali- realization that we need to promote the rational use of uh, patients' own blood uh, and being context sensitive to what we actually have. Um, and um, so what my interest is, is trying to figure out what are the cost-effective solutions that are actually applicable to um, our setting. Um, so we are busy uh, uh, setting up um, uh, a trial where we, we're looking to uh, various ways of taking oral iron that will improve uh, iron intake, uh, whether that will improve uh, hemoglobin uh, concentrations preoperatively. Uh, as Toby was mentioning, we know that preoperative anemia uh, results in poor outcomes. We know that anemia is a... Uh, is economically bad for uh, for people, uh, produces worse um, uh, in terms of scholastic outcomes. Um, people are uh, 
affected by anemia for many, many years. So trying to figure out what are the best cost-effective solutions for our context is, is what we need to look at. We need to understand better the effect anemia has in our population uh, on perioperative outcomes. Uh, some of the early data we've been looking at, again, shows increased mortality, increased morbidity, uh, same as many of the outcomes from, from first world data. Um, and uh, so we're looking at the problem, extent of the problem, and what we can do to actually fix it. Okay, thanks, Matthew. I think it's very relevant. Um, and Toby, you've also, in your talks before, spoken about actual blood transfusion and the negative impact on a patient of that. So I think um, if we wind back the clock 10 years, 20 years, um, as surgery has advanced before the era of laparoscopic surgery, we were, with the help of the anesthetists, able to do bigger operations on sicker people. And so the need for blood transfusion increased quite dramatically in high-income countries such as the United Kingdom um, and, then, and also throughout Europe. And blood transfusion, which is you know, quite a phenomenal service if you think about it, it's a nationally run service that recruits from volunteers. So it's volunteer um, orientated. And in the United Kingdom, which is what, 60, 60 million people, it delivers 2 million units of packed red cells, not, not, not accounting even for cryoplatelets and other products, um, to hospitals within 45 minutes. It's a phenomenal service. I, I, it's quite incredible. But it, it was one of those situations where have we gone too far? Um, mm -hmm. And were we, as clinicians, using too much blood? There was data coming out from particularly fractured neck of femurs suggesting that people should have a hemoglobin higher than 100 uh, or 10 gram per deciliter, depends on which criteria you use, but 100. Um, and so people were being topped up because we were chasing a number. And in the last 10 years, there's been a very critical appraisal of the somewhat liberal use of transfusion and a readjustment. Um, surgery and the quality of surgery has improved dramatically. The quality of perioperative care and anesthesia has also improved dramatically. And now we've seen the ability to offer patients uh, and enable patients to have a successful operation to with outcomes to 30 days. In really some very sick people having some very large operations. Now, the question then came about was appropriateness of interventions. Uh, it's very important that we don't criticize blood as being a bad thing. Blood is an excellent intervention in the right circumstance. So if someone is bleeding, then a blood transfusion could be life-saving. But... As with all interventions, you just need to make sure the indication is entirely appropriate. And the concept of the top-up transfusion uh, got significantly addressed in a whole series of clinical trials. So in cardiac surgery and fractured nicotema and in non-cardiac surgery, clinical trials looked at whether or not patients should 
um, be transfused to say a liberal level of 90 or a restrictive level of 70 to 80. And the vast majority of these trials showed that actually the additional liberal use of blood wasn't beneficial to patients. Mm. It didn't necessarily show harm in the setting of clinical trials. And by that, I mean randomized controlled trials delivering level one evidence, which is a different level of evidence to the association of transfusion and outcomes, which is level two, level three evidence. So level two, level three evidence was suggesting that transfusion was associated with adverse patient events. But you need to, to bear in mind that a sick person having a problem had a blood transfusion and had a bad outcome. The fact that they had a blood transfusion might be irrelevant. So when this was tested in randomized controlled trials, where you had restrictive versus liberal, what these trials showed was not that extra blood caused harm. It showed that there was no benefit of extra blood and less sometimes was completely adequate. So as we move forwards, I think now um, in high income countries, we can be fairly confident, particularly in the UK or say Australia, New Zealand, where I'm from now, that transfusion is very appropriate. And we've also seen this not just for transfusion, we've seen this in fluid. Um, there's a big randomized controlled trial where they took people undergoing laparotomy and they randomized them to liberal fluid versus restricted fluid. And it's the same story. It's the same story. Um, it's about appropriateness. It's about appropriateness. So I'm very keen to say that blood is uh, a wonderful service um, and where appropriate is very good. If we give a product inappropriately, as with any intervention, then you will expect side effects from that. Hmm. You, you, uh, Toby, you remind me of one of my professors who used to say that um, uh, fluids uh, are a drug and need to be prescribed as such. Uh, and the same, same goes for blood. It is not a, a method of making uh, ticking the numbers. Therefore, you can only come and have your hip replacement if your hemoglobin is above 10. And therefore, you will come in a week before and get a bag of blood to go from 9 till 10, because that will now check the box. And this is a common uh, feature of uh, certain types of medicine across the world, first world and third world, um, especially if you've been insured by certain insurers and they demand that certain things need to be arranged just so. And there's no evidence that ticking that box actually is going to improve, improve the outcomes. Um, you need to prescribe blood rationally for uh, an appropriate indication. If I'm on call here on a Saturday night at Grutteskir uh, Hospital in Cape Town, which is one of the major trauma centers in South Africa, I need access to blood and I need access to blood soon. Um, but uh, that is a different scenario to a patient who is asymptomatic with a pulse rate of 80, who has got a hemoglobin of seven and a half with no history of um, coronary artery disease. Um, uh, giving a bag of blood isn't a rational um, uh, intervention for that patient. So Matthew, uh, on that note then, um, were we 
you know, we live in a mixed society here, our first and third world, but for elective patients, then what would you say the current practices or current guidelines should be in terms of pre-operative management? So we've, uh, the South African Society of Anesthesiologists has published um, patient blood management guidelines uh, in conjunction with intensivists, uh, anesthetists, uh, surgeons, um, uh, hematologists. Uh, that was recently in uh, 2020, uh, which we've extensively covered uh, all aspects of, um, or different specialities. Um, and in particular, you know, we've talk, mentioned uh, uh, hip fractures or, or sorry, um, if, uh, hip replacements, for example, arthroplasties, those are, that's a good, good place to start when, you, when you're looking at uh, rational um, decision-making around perioperative anemia. Uh, so as Toby mentioned, he's talking about uh, tricks and a few of the other trials. Um, basically, uh, be very careful of using um, triggers. We, we, we love to use the term, what is your trigger for when you're gonna transfuse a patient? But a trigger, you need to be a clinician first and foremost. Um, and if a patient is asymptomatic with an HB of 6.9, that is below your trigger, that doesn't necessarily mean you should transfuse the patient. So generally speaking, we, we use uh, um, a figure of seven in uh, young patients who've got no other comorbidities. Um, and in patients who have uh, cardiac pathology, uh, eight is considered a, a, um, a concern that they need, may need to be sorted out. Any hemoglobin less than 13, according to the World Health Organization, is anemia and should be appropriately managed uh, uh, preoperatively. Um, and the earlier you do it, the more time you have um, to sort out the patient's anemia without resorting to transfusion, the better. And I would say that you need a minimum of six weeks uh, preoperatively uh, to appropriately manage the patient. And Matthew, do you think there's a different etiology in South Africa, say, to Perth, which is a uh, predominantly white Anglo-Saxon wealthy environment. Um, and so here, patients undergoing surgery, for instance, don't have malaria. They, um, well, I hope they don't. Um, <laughs> they tend to be well-fed, in fact, perhaps a little bit overfed. Um, so nutritional deficiency is not there. And so the causality of anemia is more related to underlying comorbidities. It, it, and I think it, it, that's a really important point because I don't think that is the same in low-income countries or mixing or mixed as yourselves. So that's, a, that's one of the things we, we're looking at at the moment. There's been a lot of uh, work on it. It is a different population. We uh, obviously, we've got a prevalence of HIV of 15, 20%, depending on uh, pregnancy up to 30%. Um, and we know of the association of anemia with HIV. Um, we have a lot of, uh, but we're also getting an increasing population um, with uh, lifestyles, uh, lifestyle diseases, hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Uh, that is certainly on the rise in South Africa. So we've got an evolving population. We certainly, um, uh, in terms of average age of our population is certainly younger than uh, for first world areas. Um, 
hopefully we don't have any malaria down here in Cape Town. Uh, we haven't seen that in a very long time. Um, but certainly the rest of Africa, it's, it's a massive issue. And there's been some evidence to suggest that uh, iron may be, not be beneficial, for example, in, in patients with malaria. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's complex. This is why you need to investigate a patient thoroughly. I do think that we do see a lot of patients with inflammatory conditions, and we know that uh, they don't uh, absorb oral iron very well, uh, and they have a you know, chronic uh, anemia um, functional iron deficiency, uh, and that's uh, something that uh, is difficult to, to address. But Toby, with your, your patient population as well, um, what would you say the highest cause from iron deficiency is? Is it all blood loss or actually? So we, we've got um, work going on in several areas. We do quite a lot in outside the hospital as well as inside the hospital. So outside the hospital, um, we do a lot of population screening uh, on women's health. And so we we have a team of researchers and we go to sports events, we go to shopping malls, and we set up camps where we do random finger prick testing um, of women. Um, and it's really to raise awareness. Uh, Western Australia, actually Australia as a whole, um, if you look at the Lancet Global Burden of Disease Study, um, we have the lowest instance of anemia worldwide. It's about 6 to 8%. Um, Venezuela actually has the highest incidence of anemia uh, and then certain areas of Africa. Um, now, in Australia, um, yeah, it's quite marked where we are. It, it, it is about 6 to 8% of the female population have uh, anemia at any point in time. But what's fascinating here is um, in Western Australia, one in five women attending university uh, have had an iron infusion. Uh, it's quite That's a startling good. figure. When we did yeah. um, similar work in the UK, uh, iron infusions are virtually unheard of. And the incidence of anemia is about twice. It's around about 14, 16% in the general population. Um, it, it's quite marked. And so the availability and accessibility of intravenous iron, which now is a product that you can deliver in 15 minutes fairly comfortably in the setting of a GP practice, um, I think is changing the landscape, changing the landscape. But why do you think so many women are iron deficient? Can't all, you think it's all from blood loss? Uh, well, I think the, the fundamental thing is uh, female, female health and heavy periods. Um, teenage girls, um, oh, where do I start? Um, I'm not a father of teenage girls, I'd like to point out, but um, the, uh, let's just say their diets are not necessarily meat and two veg three times a day. Um, they, I was looking at a, um, I was part of a, a school group going out on a school camp and over half of the girls had specific exclusion diets. And, um, you know, magazine medicine has a lot to play on vegan January and other such things. Um, and I'm trying very hard to be polite here. Um, 
<laughs> I have absolutely no objections to vegans or vegetarians whatsoever, but it's not an exclusion diet. It needs to be a specific diet. You can't just cut mm. things out. Um, unfortunately, humans are obligate omnivores. We have a specific meat absorption pathway for iron in the duodenum. And we also have a generic plant-based uh, pathway, which is where zinc, magnesium, and iron is absorbed through. The bottom line is the meat pathway, the heme iron pathway for HCP1 is um, significantly tenfold better than the DMT1 pathway, which is the plant-based pathway. So mm. if you are gonna cut meat from your diet, you're cutting the likelihood of you being iron deficiency uh, having iron deficiency tenfold because your absorption pathway is monumentally reduced. That That's one aspect. The other aspect is teenage girls are growing uh, and you need an, a lot of iron for your growth plate development and your growth spurt. And when you start your periods, that's an excess loss, quite simply, that men don't have. So if a normal period is 30 to 50 mils of blood, that's... 15 to 25, 30 mil, milligrams of, of iron, that's double the monthly loss of a man. Um, and if you have heavy menstrual bleeding, which is very common, um, then that's more than 80 mils of blood per calendar month. That's a liter a year. That, that's a lot of blood. And it, it's insidious and it catches up. So unfortunately, women, uh, particularly young um, post-pubescent girls are very prone to iron deficiency. Um, and it's very common. It has huge impact as well. Mm. So that's was one of the things I was thinking is more a sort of relevant role is actually still diet, you know, even because physiologically our body should respond to any blood loss or, or you know, any physiological bleed or anything really. Um, and with a whole lot of the nutritional deficiencies, especially with obesity, it seems well, what you mentioned, I think the mixture of food not getting absorbed and with a lot of medications, you know, things, other nutrients aren't absorbed, which, um, yeah, which I think is actually more sort of relevant in today's lifestyle. Mm. Um, I want, I wanted to also bring up that we're going back to earlier to the two points on giving somebody blood, I mean, the primary function of that is really to increase oxygen capacity more in an acute event or more emergency. That's debatable. But, okay, we'll come, come back. To, but, but with Just about to ask you that, Matthew. <laughs> uh, you want to answer that question, Toby? <laughs> well, uh, we're going to, we got Laura, we, we allowed Laura to speak and we're, we're going to be very well, careful not to interrupt her there. Um, we have to educate the listeners. I have to raise these topics. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but but before you answer, Toby, going about the iron deficiency itself, because you had done that. That's what I found that interesting work, you know, in mitochondrial enzymes, etc. I mean, it's really that that mitochondrial respiration and energy of the cell, um, which is where the key in iron comes from, um, which again goes back down to diet and surely there should also other be, be other nutritional deficiencies we should be looking at for optimum cellular function well that's a really good question um look i think 
we the question you're asking is what is iron deficiency and what is normal iron hemostasis? And I think we have literally uncovered Pandora's box in this regard. 10 years ago, we were not particularly interested in blood because blood transfusion was readily available uh, in high income countries and wasn't an issue. And when I started in this research, people would say, well, <laughs> it's not a problem. We just give a bag of blood. Um, and then there was a readjustment in the transfusion world. And in the last five years, the use of intravenous iron has come in almost as blood has gone out and it's been seen as swapping one for another. But the point you make is so valid in that what is blood? Blood is a polyviscous fluid. Um, that also has some cellular content in it that at some point after several hours facilitates oxygen delivery. Now, one of my biggest questions about many of the transfusion trials is what is the dose of the active component within the product that you're delivering? So if you're giving a liter of blood, that's a liter of polyviscous fluid, putting my trialist hat on, you know, um, the placebo should have been a liter of polyviscous fluid as well. Because you're going to have multiple functions from, for instance, tricks or relief or all of the other trials of an additional fluid bolus. So is the benefit of blood the fluid bolus, the splinting of the capillary beds or the cellular component which could be as little as 20% of active cells? Or is it the fact that you're giving dead cells and you're causing an inflammatory response and a post-ischemic reperfusion insult? Um, discuss, Matthew. <laughs> Opening a can of worms there. Uh, I mean, we, we know there's, there's some evidence that when they've looked at the delivery of oxygen, which is kind of what we're actually interested in, we want to know that what we're doing is going to improve delivery of oxygen to our patients. And therefore, if we do that, the patients are going to do better. And there's some evidence that uh, suggests that giving a bag of blood to a critically ill patients does not improve delivery at the capillary level. And um, so the question is, what are we actually achieving? Um, so it's complex. We, we know that uh, Patients with hemoglobin of two and who are bleeding, they, they, they're going to die. But they, they, there's, there's a clear uh, mortality drop off uh, below, below five. Um, patients do, do, do very, very badly. Um, but uh, again, we just, we're not sure that what we're doing is actually achieving what we aim to do. We're not, we're not at that point. And the flip side is that, um, as Laura pointed out, is that it's not just about delivering the oxygen. Uh, a hemoglobin is basically just a bucket that delivers oxygen to cells, but it's actually the utilization of that oxygen with glucose to generate ATP, i.e. aerobic metabolism, that's the key factor. And the aerobic metabolism is undertaken in the mitochondria and um, every component cytochrome in the mitochondria has either got an iron component in it or an iron enzyme. And one of the factors that has been known for some time since Clement Finch 
in the 70s. And um, we've repeated those experiments uh, with perhaps some more modern assays, is that iron deficiency is associated with a reduction in the cytochrome function and reduction in cellular activity um, and reduction in ATP de uh, generation. Oh, and we've seen that um, in animal models where those muscles that are pre predominantly aerobic in metabolism are, are markedly impacted um, by iron deficiency. And when you uh, supplement with an iron infusion, because the beauty about an iron infusion is a defined intervention with an instant response. So in the setting of science, that's very useful because you've got before and after. Um, you can see a market improvement and return to normal and return to physical function. Uh, we've seen that at experimental level. Um, we've seen that in vivo with uh, mice on treadmills uh, and also uh, women on treadmills. So we, we've done a lot of work, in, as we mentioned, in women's health. One of the reasons we did the screening is that uh, we wanted to identify a population of people with low iron. Um, so many thanks to the Vegan Marathon Runners Club, um, who were the number one people enrolled in our clinical trials. And we're delighted to help. Um, but it, you can get quite a dramatic improvement in their physical function um, mm. in terms of endurance uh, and time to exhaustion, as well as VO2 peak um, on, on CPAP testing. And, and they, these are really valuable findings because they then translate into the elderly people undergoing surgery and how you can optimize them for surgery. That, so that brings the full circle around. Um, one of the interesting things that I, I'd be interested in, Matthew, is whether or not in, in the population that you see in trauma, these people may come in relatively fit and healthy and young. They lose a lot of blood. So the causality of post-operative anemia is blood loss, but they might not have the iron stores to regenerate. And I was wondering in, in that population in the trauma, I don't know if you've got experience in this, if you're seeing anemia or perhaps iron deficiency is a problem. Definitely. I think uh, nutritional status is uh, uh, it's a big question in our socioeconomic uh, uh, status. We most uh, many of our patients who are shot or stabbed or whatever um, do come from uh, poor economic backgrounds. Um, and you know, once you hit a hemoglobin of seven or eight, we are unlikely. We we follow the the restrictive guidelines. You're unlikely to. Uh, receive anything else other than some oral iron. Now the question is applicability of intravenous iron in our status. So we agree that uh, IV iron has got a lot of uh, a role to play in uh, the management of perioperative anemia. What exactly that role is in uh, our uh, uh, resource uh, poor communities um, needs to be elucidated. Um, you know, it's uh, in terms of setting up a clinic, um, putting up drips, um, making sure the patient is able to arrive. I think one of the advantages, of course, is that it's a one-time intervention, as, as you mentioned. Um, a single dose could completely fill a patient's uh, um, iron uh, stores uh, and hopefully set them up for uh, many years to come. Um, so the question is, how would we do a iron clinic, so to speak, in, say, um, uh, Namibia or uh, 
Congo or wherever. I mean, trying to figure those logistics out uh, is something of its own. But the question is, is it easier to do that than set up an entire blood transfusion service uh, for northern Mozambique? Uh, and we know that that's going to be very, very difficult to achieve. So it's, uh, I think there's, there's a lot to, still to be explored in this area. Um, and hopefully we can start answering those questions in the next few years and translate a lot of what you, your work has shown um, to uh, a massive population that desperately needs uh, uh, help. The interesting thing is the interplay, I think, in um, the hospital setting where inflammation has a big role to play. And so for those who are unaware, iron deficiency can be absolute or it can be functional. So absolute iron deficiency is you open the cupboard doors and the ironing cupboard is empty. There is no iron there. Uh, someone has removed it. And that's because either um, you have a low iron diet or you've got excess loss, which is commonly bleeding. Now, in someone who's got a chronic disease, and for the sake of argument, let's call inflammation uh, one of the key etiologies in chronic disease. Um, in the setting of a hospitalized patient where they're acutely unwell, there's more inflammation. And what happens is that that inflammation, particularly the IL-6, and that might be just because we have assays for IL-6 so we can test for it, um, but inflammation in general, upregulates a protein from the liver called hepcidin. And hepcidin um, works by downregulating the transport protein called ferroportin, which ports the ferrous, um, which is a membrane uh, protein that allows ferritin to be moved from inside a cell to outside of the cell. So when you eat iron from the gut, it gets into the enterocyte, but it has to move out of the enterocyte, and that's by ferroportin. It's then moved around the body by transferrin, transports the ferrin, um, and it's stored in ferritin, which is like a biscuit tin, ferritin. Uh, it's actually very, very simple uh, iron metabolism. That's how I can understand it. Um, now, Hepcidin turns off ferroportin, it downregulates it. So what happens is that when your red cells are recirculated, which is 50 mils a day or 25 milligrams of iron, uh, by the spleen, the macrophages will recycle those, that iron. But if their export protein is downregulated, the macrophages can take up the iron, but they can't get the iron out, they can't deliver it. Um, so you develop a state where actually when you look at the body, you've got iron, but you can't use it because it's sequestered and it's taken up by inflammation. Um, now that, you know, why, why does the human body react that way? Um, that's a really good question. I don't know. Matthew, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I know is that it's a negative feedback system to prevent uh, iron overload. Um, more than that, why it works exactly that way, I don't know. Well, it, 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 I mean, perhaps it's an innate response to infection because bacteria require an unrich environment, um, as do certain parasites like uh, malaria. So if you're iron-rich, then everything can multiply. So the body reacts by sequestering the iron. And so inflammation 
um, which is very common in infection, could be the trigger for that. Now, the question is, is inflammation working against us in surgery? Um, and if we downplay the inflammatory pathway, we might increase our iron stores and reduce anemia. Um, and then this is one of the, I think, one of the big next steps in our metabolism. We need to understand the interplay of acute and chronic inflammation with our metabolism. And this is very, very relevant to your work, Matthew, is it? At what point will oral iron work in these patients? Especially in the post-operative period. As you mentioned, uh, that's when they're particularly vulnerable. They've lost a, a vast store of iron, whether it's bleeding. And now they're in an inflammatory state. And uh, uh, how long that inflammatory state remains, they're unable to uh, we give them their oral iron, send them home and uh, hope for the best. Um, and uh, this may be the opportunity for um, intravenous uh, iron before the patients leave the hospital. And uh, hopefully they will be able to make use of that, those iron, that iron uh, much better than just giving them oral iron and hope, hope for, hoping for the best. I think it's a really big unknown question because the other problem we have is in the hospital, what, what's the blood test that we use to define iron deficiency? Because iron deficiency could be um, low ferritin, but ferritin is an acute phase response protein. Yeah. So it will be artificially high. And if you look on intensive care patients and you measure ferritin levels, it could be in the thousands. Um, and the irony is we've got to bear in mind what we're measuring. Ferritin is just a protein that holds iron. When you measure it, you measure the ferritin. You don't measure how much iron in the ferritin. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think we are opening a bit of a Pandora's box here. Um, and we do need to understand the balance between inflammation, iron stores, EPO levels, etc. cetera, yeah. um, in, in that regard, because prescribing drugs out of hospital when someone might have post-operative nausea and vomiting and feel a little bit unwell and you give them a tablet that might make them feel a bit queasy isn't going to be beneficial. And no. the question is, do we give it two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks later? When, when, when's it going to work? Okay, we are actually going to have to round up soon just because of time. But um, thank you. It's been a very interesting discussion. I'm sure a lot more could be said. But can I just ask you each to give a, a short take-home message from your work at separate ends of the world? Um, I'm happy to make a short. Basically, if you don't look for it, you're going to miss it. So uh, if you have a patient um, coming for a big operation, you must look at the hemoglobin. If it is low, you need to investigate. Not only do you need to find out what the cause is, uh, but you also need to figure out what the iron status of the patient is and the differentiation between uh, an absolute and a functional iron deficiency uh, and a treat appropriately. If you have time, you can use oral iron. Oral iron does work, but you've got to give enough time and the patient needs to be very compliant and needs to fulfill a set of criteria as to when they take the iron appropriately. Uh, and if you're running out of time and it's time-sensitive surgery, 
uh, intravenous iron does have a, a, a role to play. And uh, um, it's, as uh, Toby mentioned, there are um, certain um, IV preparations which are easy to use. It can be rapidly infused. And the side effect profile is a lot, lot better than they were 20, 30 years ago. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. So my, my take home message is that iron deficiency is incredibly common. It's the iron mm. deficiency that causes the symptoms, not the anemia. And mm. we need to think slightly more laterally. It can affect apparently fit and healthy individuals, teenage, teenagers, women, uh, men. Uh, but it can also be a big problem in hospitals. We, mm. we need to think about algorithms of care. Uh, this is a problem. Iron deficiency causes mental and physical health uh, impairment. Oral mm. iron and ch change of diet, oral iron are great options. Intravenous iron is a treatment and blood transfusion is a treatment. But we mustn't get hung up on one, not the other. We need to think yeah. about the management of the whole patient and the management of the condition. We don't truly understand it all. We don't have all the answers. But there are a lot of things that as doctors we can do to help patients with these conditions. Thank you. Thank you, Toby. Thank you, Matt. I think we'll have to have a second podcast and further topics on this, but thank you for joining today. Yeah, just much appreciated. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been a great pleasure. Pleasure.